good. Um, gonna turn another week full of energy, full of excitement. Um, I am pretty stoked to kind of talk about this, um, this book that we read or part of this book that we read. So I don't know. Do we have any preamble? Do we have any any business to get through? Join the Discord. Uh, there will be a link. DM us if you want. Just let you know. Fucking come to the Discord. It's so much fun. Check out our YouTube. I figured we haven't been saying that, so it's like eh, maybe I'll say it at the beginning. Yeah. yeah, it's what you're supposed to do. It's what you're supposed to do. Yeah. You're also supposed to ask people to review the show on iTunes and stuff. But I don't know. That feels feels yeah. much. They might not say nice things. That's true. And I'm not sure yeah. I can take that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> review the show if you want to leave a positive review. Yeah. <laughs> if not, uh, send us from some very kindly worded yeah. um, criticism slash room for improvement comments yeah. privately yeah. via email. I yeah, suppose. exactly. There was a guy a while ago who very politely, he commented on one video and was like, wow, this is really cool. Thanks, you guys, for doing this. And then he commented another video and was like, just the smallest, tiniest, almost like not even a thing nitpick, but your volume levels are way off. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay, yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What are you going to do? Yeah, that's something that, have we improved on that? I don't know. I don't Well, I mean, I guess we'll see. Um, Maybe we just need the same person to tell yeah. us each time. We'll hire them to be the producer of the show. <laughs> Podcast producer, oh God. Um Mm-hmm. <laughs> we we labor under the petty tyranny of the podcast <laughs> producer. <laughs> Talk about a slave mode of production, am I right, folks? <laughs> um, I'm full of excitement, Dan, to talk about this because I really, really dug this. Um, so I think we should just kind of jump this right in. This is your preferred period of history. This is my preferred period of time. Uh-huh. The cool time, as everybody <laughs> knows. Um, so do you want to hit us with an introduction for what we read and why we read it? Other than it's cool. Uh-huh. Well, uh, this week we read the first half of Perry Anderson's The Passages... Oh, no. Passages <laughs> from Antiquity to Feudalism. Plural. Passages. <laughs> I bought this book years and years... Well, yeah, years and years and years ago. After I read uh, Ellen Meeks' with The Origins of Capitalism, I was like, well, I need to get the <laughs> attendant book for another period of transition. And I located this on Verso's website and bought it. Mm, you got um, a Verso giving no particular consideration to the fact that like different historians <laughs> fall into different schools of thought, whether Perry Anderson's ideas necessarily married up particularly well with Ellen Meeks Woods' ideas on mm. history. Uh, who am I to say? I'm not in a position to <laughs> criticize at this point in time. Um, suffice to say, I started reading it and never finished it. And now this, this reading that I've just done for this podcast is the most comprehensive reading of this book that I've ever done. And I don't know why I left it so long, because yeah. it is a very excellent book. Perry Anderson, yeah. at the outset, is like, I don't know, he's a, it's a bit of a disclaimer. He's like, I'm not necessarily a historian. Like, historians do, like, proper historical archival work. Um, and I think it's probably true to say that this is a... A brief overview, but given that the period of history that it covers is well over a thousand years, um, <laughs> it is remarkably comprehensive, I found, in the subject matter it tries to cover, which is basically yeah. the political economy um, of not only the political economy that surrounds the transition from the antique slave mode of production through into feudalism, but also the political economy that go- governed and motivated the actual rise of the slave mode of production in the first place. So mm. you kind of get two transitions for one. 
Yeah, I think uh, I was... This book was mentioned, as you say, in Ella Meeson's Woods, Origin of Capitalism. And she says, you know, there's this, the first volume, and then there's uh, the one about the absolute estate. Yeah, lineages. Lineages of the absolute estate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then she kind of goes, she talks kind of at length about Perry Anderson, but she kind of just is like, we're not really concerned with like passages. Yeah, I think she comments mostly on lineages of the absolute estate. And basically her distinction is that she kind of sees... French state absolutism as being something which is different from capitalism, mm. a different sort of road yeah. into modernity, whereas Perry Anderson kind of sees it as something which is a transitional phase to mm. capitalism. Yeah, it's the removal of the fetters argument, right? Yeah. She was saying that like Perry Anderson kind of falls into the same camp as the commercial. You get a lot of theory. that in this book. That was my yeah. only gripe with it. Not gripe necessarily, but given yeah. that that's the only way the only mode of thinking around these things from which I know how to criticize the, these ideas, yeah. i.e. the Wood Brenner kind of school of thought, that was the only criticism I kind of leveled at this, was this kind of like presumption of sort of reading capitalism into the past kind of thing. There are sort of mm. hints of that. We'll get onto it. Perhaps I'm, not certain on. I, I'm not certain I found much of that in this, but I think that was just because I haven't finished the book. Mm, <laughs> and also true. because it's in a very early time. But um, as you say... I saw this book at a bookstore a couple weeks ago and got it. And I think that when we read about it in Ellen Mason's Wood, I was quite a bit more interested in reading this book than the lineages of the absolute state one, as I said, because this is the cool time of history. But um, it's interesting, yeah, because he is trying to do something that you kind of can't really be an expert in, which is like give an extremely long narrative, give give a narrative over an extremely long period of time, right? And it's like... Generally, like, historians are experts in really specific fields, right? So, like, if you're an expert, you're not an expert on the Middle Ages, right? You're an expert on, like, the political economy of, like, merchants in Venice between, like, you know, 15 years. He is very, uh, he understands this, right? He understands that he's writing a history that is going to leave out a lot of concrete detail. And I don't know, because I guess he is comfortable with that because what he is trying to do is make abstractions about modes of production. And he says at the beginning, you know, there are going to be a bunch of different social formations in any given mode of production. So this is going to be kind of cursory and everything's abstracted away from itself. But um, having said that, uh, this really did rock. I I think the only real problems that I had with it were towards the end when he talks about the transition. Because we should say we read all about like Greece and the Hellenistic states and then uh, Rome, and then finally the decline of the Western Empire and uh, the barbarian, quote-unquote, city-states, or not city-states, uh, kind of like tribal communal modes of production. Um, and then, you know, the invasions of Rome, the fall of the empire, and then towards synthesis, and then that's kind of where we stopped. Um, so we don't know anything about feudalism yet. We don't know what that is, but um, I'm stoked to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Really, really mm-hmm. stoked. Yeah. I my my historic historical knowledge of this period is lacking massively, but the period that really has always kind of bamboozled me somewhat <laughs> is basically the first thousand years of the sort of common era of, of mm. timekeeping. I suppose <laughs> um, I always forget that the Roman Empire lasted as long as it did. Yeah, and then and then obviously the collapse of the Roman Empire is then placed very much closer to the period of history which I kind of have more familiarity with. I feel mm. like in English schooling you kind of get a vague concept of sort of like Rome perhaps, but yeah. really history starts with the Norman conquests. Yeah. And the sort of uh the formation of um 
the geographical area known as England into one yeah. sort of polity or kingdom or what have you. Yeah. Um, and for that period of time preceding that, my my historical knowledge prior to reading this book was incredibly vague. Like I kind of knew there was a character called Charlemagne, but I actually <laughs> had no idea like what period of time he existed in, what state he ruled, how large that state was. Mm. Um Anyway, that's just to give a general <laughs> sense of where I started reading this book from. Yeah, it, this book definitely kind of like, especially the Rome chapter, not so much the Greece stuff, but the Rome chapter, it's like, you know who Maximinus Thrax is, right? And it's like, what? <laughs> I do because I'm an asshole. But like, yeah, it's hard to, you lose out on the concrete detail that is in this if you don't have, I guess, a general understanding of like the framework of what happened yeah. between like, the, well, he talks at length about Rome, so like most of Western Roman history and then the kind of like downfall of the empire. Um, but we'll get to all that. Should we start off by talking about slaves and let's, Greek slaves let's, specifically? Let's do it. Yeah. Um, I was surprised by one of the overarching theses of this parts of the book, which is that um, how not unproductive, but how the slave mode of production really didn't develop technology too much and about how stagnant it was, I guess is a better way of saying it. Um, just by the nature of the slave mode of production, there was very little technological advancement because nobody was interested in labor-saving devices. But I guess maybe we need to take another step back and be like, what is the slave mode of production? Um, he basically says that, uh, well, I don't know. I suppose I've always had an understanding of the slave mode of production as just like, assuming Greek and Roman states just had chattel slavery, right? And that it was basically just like American slavery in the 19th and 18th centuries um, overlaid onto Greece and Rome. But he makes a point here that that really isn't true. Um, but yeah, it's very hard to wrap your head around, I think. Yeah, he is suggesting that there's something incredibly novel about the way that particularly Athenian Greece deploys slave labor in a way which it's never done before, which has never happened before. He sort of says there has been slavery in the past, right? But it usually took other forms. He sort of refers to debt bondage uh, yeah. or, yeah, other forms where it was small scale and particular, whereas in Athenian Greece in particular, but all throughout the Greek city-states, it was generalized into something which could very specifically be, be referred to as a mode of production. Hmm. Um, which is one of the more interesting sort of like general historical takeaways. And I guess we've hinted at this in previous episodes, but this sort of compounds that idea, which is that like, what, what my, maybe one of my general takeaways from this book is like, the history of this kind of stuff is incredibly messy. Yeah. And yeah. attempting to draw out very specific periodizations for modes of production and to determine what it was that led to their rise and fall and to sort of denote their specific characteristics that that define them when things like slavery existed prior to the slave mode of production, yeah. when things like, when markets have existed in different yeah. ways prior to capitalism, you know, like there are these elements floating around and also all of these elements still continue to exist, right? Mm. Like Perry Anderson doesn't really contradict in actual fact he sort of supports in very many ways the argument that we got from that piece um about greece that we read by ellen Meeksin's word where she essentially says that like although the mode of production was it is properly should be properly described as the slave mode of production in that the vast majority of the labor 
that contributed to the surpluses that were reaped by the ruling class. That labor came from slaves. Mm. But what she actually says was what was definitive, which she's kind of talking about the political system, but she's saying what's definitive is the position of um, free laborers and free citizens yeah. in these modes of production, um, of which there were a great many. So yeah. I only make this point to say that, like, yeah, they were slaves and they did the bulk of the work. There had been slaves before, but there were still all these other various classes and in a lot of ways the 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 newer novel deployment of slaves in this situation was actually to quell other class conflicts right mm. it was that the prior to the rise of this mode of production and then therefore the sort of dominant position that athens came to take up for a brief period of time um in the sort of like in, in that eastern mediterranean area no. uh, <laughs> um was basically because um prior to slavery they'd had this kind of like um very form of very aristocratic rule which was very uh which um was very exploitative of um the sort of like agricultural workers over which they dominated and it led to these massive sort of like um social tensions and this huge amount of class conflict um there's another instance where like it is an attempt to settle some kind of problematic class conflict that generated new uh economic forms and modes of production right like um you have the this rise of a of a what he calls a series of tyrants, right? Like th there's a new rising economic class and they subdue the ancient sort of like tribal aristocracies and make concessions to um, the previously impoverished landed peasants. Um, and so in place of this, what previously existed was an exploitation of free peasants now that they're making all these concessions to the free peasants to try and improve their lot, to tax them less, to give them more land, they have to find some other body of person, some other class of person to do the laboring. And they come up with slaves, which, um, as we're going to see throughout this book, are always the product of um, expansion, its policies, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, I wanted to go back to something you said right at the beginning there. Um, maybe it's best to save it until the end, though, but it, 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 it was kind of just about, like, the general taxonomy of modes of production and, like, how spoiled we are studying capitalism as it currently exists because, like, it's very easy to say kind of more or less what capitalism is currently because it's a global system and just by its nature it has to be a global system. Um, but when you get back and you try and study, like, modes of production... Um, even just before capitalism, including feudalism, it begets, it becomes really messy because as we saw in the Ellen Meekson's Wood, like when she was trying to talk about the origin of capitalism, there were a number of different ways things could have gone. At least that's kind of her thesis. And in the ancient or slave modes of production, different city-states did things very slightly differently. And so it's kind of hard to like nail one thing down and one way of doing things as the slave mode of production, unless you want to be as broad as the general agricultural work was done predominantly by slaves and the people who had the power were like these either aristocrats or tyrants um, who lived in cities and drew their wealth from like these slaves. And you can, you can draw parallels between, you know, 
uh, Sparta and uh, Athens and then also Rome, but also like they did all these things completely differently. It's like when you get into the feudal mode of production, <laughs> whatever that is, it's like you could walk 20 feet and go from like a bishopric where you owe everything to the bishop to like, you know, now you're in land owned by the king to then, you know, now you're in land owned by the Austrians and it's in the Holy Roman Empire and then you go 20 more feet and then it's not and everything's just kind of like works similarly but is also very different. Um, so I guess all I'm saying is that like when we go back this far in history and we try and have a general like structure for what we assume a single mode of production is and try and apply it to everything, it's not really going to work. Um, but that isn't to say that we can't draw parallels like we're doing here. And I think when we go to talk about Rome, those parallels blew my mind with Greece. Um, yeah. And I kind of, it gets to what you're talking about, the tyrants, but I suppose maybe we should go back and talk a little bit more about them. Um, and also just like this general, as you were saying, like lateral expansion that uh, political entities always took. Yeah, I, I, it's a really excellent point. Yeah, one of the things that this book really made me think very much about was these ideas you get in Marx whereby capitalism is kind of like perfected or mm. the class conflict, I suppose, or like drawn everybody into two contending classes. Yeah. And it's kind of like generalized one form of exploitation over the entire world whereas as you say like you could you could write a book or a history of athens and sparta where you drew out all of the, the ways in which those two modes of existence <laughs> differed so yeah. drastically that it would they would appear like apples and oranges and you wouldn't read it as one mode of production at all mm. you would be like Wait, okay, so here all the slaves were owned collectively, and in Athens the slaves were owned privately, and, like, I don't know. Well, then I suppose what you need to do, right, is I guess you have to look at, first of all, the social relations that exist in that society, as different as they may be, who's being exploited and who's not, then you can draw parallels there. But then also, I guess, just that the contradictions that push history forward, (laughs) heavy air quotes (laughs) around all of that, but that move history, I guess. Um, Because we'll see it's these uh, contradictions, not only between like the aristocrats and the slaves, but also like um, in Greece, it was these uh, small to like middle holding kind of peasants, I suppose you would call them, who um, helped like set up uh, tyrant rule. Um, but then also once we get to Rome, we'll have to talk about like this, like urban class that like is called a proletariat. And that's where the word comes from, but mm-hmm. is like very, mm-hmm. very different. In the, in the narrative of this book, what's kind of happening, and, and that's not to say that that narrative isn't actually true of the history that happens, but in a sort of broad generalization, what this book is offering us is an idea whereby the slave mode of production and its internal dynamics are generally or gradually being perfected by each of Mm. these sort of stages of this period of time. So like the the Greeks and particularly the Athenians develop this mode of production, uh, but they exploit it in particular ways, but it also it has particular limitations which are unique to their situation in in the sense that in the particular case of Athens, it's a kind of like, quite how strong the democracy is and quite how much uh, political power is afforded to the citizens in such a way that Mm. um, the ruling class can't exploit in quite the same way. But um, certain, certain boundaries are overcome by the next formation so it's like the yeah the the sort of intervening hellenistic states that come after um uh 
Alexander's conquest of the area and then once again Rome sort of like manages to overcome certain things that have fettered the mode of production so far but have their own contradictions built in kind of thing so mm. this is sort of gradual building um of this mode of production yeah I guess he also does emphasize I suppose we should say too that like uh, he isn't just like, it is just these social relations that were perfected in Athens that allowed them to have an empire that was like, not that big. But like, um, it's also just the fact that like, and Athens also sits on the most wealthy silver mines yeah. in all of there and they yeah, have like yeah. the best navy yeah. and the blah, 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 blah. Yeah, he does make a very good point that like, their power is very contingent and very finely mm. balanced, you know, right? Like yeah. they had these silver mines which allowed them to sort of dominate currency production and also they were able to build up build a navy from that that was able to subdue all these other city states and that left them in a position whereby they didn't need to tax their citizenry because they were able to exact tolls from all of these sort of client states and also because they were able to control trade they were able to tax trade in certain ways but mm. th that sort of like not taxing the citizenry left them in a very precarious position because once all of that source of income melted away or was like disrupted by various rebellions and conquests and that kind of thing. And they're the sort of very finely balanced or quote unquote like potentially perfected political system that they'd had actually falls apart very quickly because it's hard to, it was all built around sort of quelling these sort of social conflicts which boil up as soon as it's sort of like the, the the things the contingent things put in place to mediate them disappear kind of thing yeah it's 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 all really interesting i mean i don't it's funny because i don't he doesn't have too much to say in the hellenic states um meaning the like uh <clears throat> you know post alexander like either like the Seleucids or like the ptolemaic dynasties but like i don't know maybe i don't have too much to say about that other than that period of history post athens and the dealing league and all this stuff was just interesting because it kind of served as an example of trying to overlay this mode of production, especially in the East, on something that was different. And it just kind of like, I don't know, he said that like, you know, provincial governors or whatever would like try and tell people to do this one thing or like the king or whatever. And they just kind of go, yeah, sure, whatever. And then just leave and just kind of not do it. But I suppose that speaks more to like the lack of political power. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess in, in this instance, it's used as an example of the effort to hold together a uh, an empire over a vast territorial area which in the instance of post alexander's death it just wasn't able to do right people are so <laughs> the people in that region were so culturally different kind of thing mm. um uh the sort of like the social relations of the mode of production in macedonia were so vastly different from athenian greece you know mm. that, that like it just wasn't possible to hold it together but like roll on 500 years or whatever and then you're at the height of the or maybe a bit longer you're mm. at the height of the roman empire and the the empire was able to hold this vast mm. territorial region in a way that um the, the sort of macedonian empire wasn't able to do yeah um so there's another instance of that sort of like gradual progression I yeah suppose. yeah it's also interesting because i guess like that did happen in egypt um you know, that, that dynasty would rule until Caesar came along, right? Um, or I guess Mark Antony, but like, yeah, it's all very interesting. And it's, I guess my point there is just that like, yeah, obviously we're trying to use like a Marxist framework to study this history and it is extremely important to look at these contradictions in these social formations, but like, you know, it's also extremely important to like look at the massive amount of silver that was underneath Athens and like all these different like actual material circumstances that existed. Um, but yeah, I suppose maybe we can 
transition a bit to Rome, perhaps, and talk about that like lateral expansion. Because one thing that was the same um, in all of these societies is that um, expansion came laterally, which means almost always just through conquest. Um, and that might sound obvious, but what I mean is like the slave mode of production had no internal mode of reproduction on its own. And, you know, you might say like, well, slaves could have kids, but like they kind of weren't for a lot of different reasons. And they definitely weren't reproducing at a rate where they could like, you know, and then their kids become slaves and the capitalist or not capitalist, but like, you know, the owner of that farm doesn't have to buy new slaves in the future. But um, so the only real way to get new slaves was to just go and conquer somebody else and kidnap a bunch of people and enslave them and make them your slaves. Um, and so I think that sets up nicely to talk about Rome. Um, uh, because Rome certainly did a lot of that. And when they stopped doing that, things kind of fell apart. But um, we have to take another step back because we have to talk about, I think, go back to the tyrants. Because the thing that differentiated Rome... And this fucking blew my mind. The thing that differentiated Rome at the very beginning from these Greek city-states and what allowed them to expand so much, and it really, you wouldn't think that this is true, was that there was never, like, a tyrant phase of the Roman city-state. Um, Anderson here makes the point that, like, whereas the tyrants in Greece represented these small to medium-holding peasants that kind of wanted to take power because they were left out of political power by the aristocracy, for whatever reason, the aristocracy in Rome never gave up power, at least, you know, for the entire republic. They just, they had it and they just never gave it up until, kind of until the empire, but like even through the empire, they managed to kind of steer uh, the boat a little bit. Obviously they would fall off towards like the third century and stuff, but um, but I just find that really fascinating. That's not something you'll ever read in like, you could read a million bourgeois histories of like, of Rome and you wouldn't really hear about this comparison, I feel like. And it really made me view everything in a different light because it's like, wait a minute. I just thought class in Rome was just like the people with the money and then the urban poor and that was it. But um, yeah, it really blew my mind. It is really fascinating because it's another example of like them overcoming one uh, failing of the way the Greeks have been doing yeah. slave slavery, but then creating myriad other contradictions of their own. So mm -hmm. you're like, the... Greece went through this sort of phase of um, having tyrants, which took over political power and subdued the aristocracy by making concessions to the sort of the citizenry, which in the in the end ended up elevating the citizenry to the point where they had this degree of political power which couldn't be overcome. So that that political freedom couldn't be then be subdued, and so when they lost the ability to make all these concessions to um, the the free citizens and because they never really developed a sense of political theory because they mm. never actually because Athens largely relied on sortition and never really had a political class never really had bureaucrats in this kind of way like it was an incredibly fragile system whereas in Rome as you say they never went through this phase by which uh, various tyrants came to power who swept away the aristocracy and so the kind of like the rich landed aristocracy managed to manage to maintain their power. But as a result, what eventually happened was a gradual degradation of the position of the the free citizen, or the, the sort of like the peasant citizen, I suppose, who actually had a small plot of land. So they were landowners and not, as you say, like proletarians or proletarii or whatever the, the sort of Greek word would be. Um, so gradually what happened through the uh, the era of the Republic was this process whereby the landed peasants were gradually forced off of the land and became 
non-owners of any uh, capital. They didn't own any means of production, rather. Um, so they become they, there's this gradually growing poor citizenry of Rome, which the Roman aristocracy makes some concessions toward placating a little bit. Like, obviously, yeah. there are sort of, like, constitutional changes which happen, which do elevate them, do give them some democratic and political rights, do give them some representation. But Rome never ends up in the position where the democratic demands of the the poor are ever elevated above the power of the aristocracy, and the mm. aristocracy always manages to maintain power. And it's one of the things that leads to the eventual growth of political in political influence of um, those people, those sort of military generals that would oversee the end of the Republic and mm. the, the first, the beginnings of the empire, right? Because more and more people become conscript soldiers, but there isn't very much for them to return back to once they stop fighting these wars of expansion, as you say, that were central to the growth of uh, Roman wealth and particularly the wealth of the Roman aristocracy there was nothing in Rome for them re to return back to they still didn't mm. have any land they weren't being paid particularly good wages so then they became very very much like um, they became patronized by certain generals right and it was the generals that promised them wealth it was the generals that said we will plunder these places and we will you will receive what the aristocracy in Rome isn't willing to give you. Mm. And it was that that led the sort of proletarians to split with, from the aristocracy that was the leadership of the Republic and led them to side with the first emperors who were very willing and happy to placate them. I yeah, yeah. I think look, just staying on the Republic for a second sure. before we get into the end of the empire, I really, really, I had to read this passage a couple of times to really figure out what was going on here. But I'd like to read what Anderson says regarding the kind of class composition of the Republic. And in every history that you read about the Republic, the question of land reform is always kind of at the front and center. Is like the thing that, you know, helped bring down the Republic as soon as these like demagogues like the Gracchi or even Caesar like started to promise land reform that everybody, you know, would be like, wow, this is our way out of like this horrible drudgery. <clears throat> and so Anderson says, in fact, no durable or substantial agrarian reform ever occurred in the Republic, despite constant agitation and turbulence over the question of the final epoch of its existence. The political dominance of the nobility blocked all efforts to reverse the relentless social polarization of property on land. The result was a steady erosion of the modest farmer class that had provided the backbone of the Greek polis. The Roman equivalent of the hoplite category, uh, blah, 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 was the acidui, um, those who settled on the lands. And then beneath them were the proletarii. And this was really interesting because the word prol just means kids. And so when you're, when this word proletariat or proletarii, proletarii was like labeled on this urban citizenry to kind of denote people that didn't own anything, no property, no land, no nothing. Um, it basically just means that these people, their job was to just have kids and was to just reproduce. Uh, nothing else. And that's, yeah, I don't know. That's kind of crazy. And I guess, you know, Marx was obviously like really into classicism and all of this stuff. Um, and so you kind of see why he chose this word, which he didn't invent. He didn't invent the word proletariat. It comes from the Roman proletarii. Um, because, you know, this is a very similar situation that workers have under capitalism. You know, it's kind of brutal to think of like, all you do is social reproduction and the labor and that's it. But this is where it comes from. It just comes from this idea of this urban citizenry that could, 
in kind of a contradictory way, be really swayed by the aristocracy in a lot of political battles. Um, and who, yeah, it was just their job to have kids, which was just kind of a bummer. But we also see here that, like, in this contradictory way, because there was never any land reform as there was with ty tyrants in Greece, um, this middle class of just, like, small landowners completely disappeared, more or less, in Rome, or they were just pushed to the boundaries of, like, really crappy farmland where, you know, you couldn't really make much wealth anyways. And so in this way, the aristocracy was able to maintain its dominance through, like, an incredibly uh, turbulent time. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it kind of brings us on to another way in which the the Romans were really perfecting, I suppose, or sort of building upon this concept of the slave mode of production. Because like, as you say, in Greece, like the small land, the small landed, the middle classes, I suppose, were maintained uh, on the land with small land holdings. Maybe they had a few slaves of their own kind of thing. But like, there were large relatively large landholders in Greece so there were there was a wealthy class but they tended to hold maybe small pockets of land disconnected from one another whereas at sort of with all of these small landholders in between kind of thing whereas because there was the general degradation of the middle class in Rome to the point where it didn't really exist anymore and everybody was drove driven into the ranks of the proletarians um what you have is a landed aristocracy that hold huge tracts of land all located together and then what you get is the growth of the kind of like i don't know how this word is said latifundi latifundi mm. kind of thing like where you have huge numbers of slaves almost like industrially organized <laughs> taking liberties with the word <laughs> industrial obviously but like um who were like put to work in a very in a, in a much grander gr larger scale than um slavery had ever existed in greece right but which also made then the wealth of the aristocracy so much more dependent on access to slaves and as you say like um, and perry anderson makes very clear like it's a it's a workforce that doesn't isn't self-reproducing right mostly there were male slaves that were kept and so there wasn't huge rates of childbirth and obviously they would be then in a position to have to maintain those children without them being able to work if they did do that so really what they'd rather do was just get slaves for, as the proceeds of conquest and enslavement of like uh, defeated armies or foreign populations kind of mm. thing. Yeah. And I, that's why you see like another thing that led to the downfall of the Republic was, or at least in terms of greater agitation from the proletariat was just that everybody was kind of sick of these wars. It got to the point where it was like, okay, I kind of see why we did some of these wars guys, because like, you know, random, like, Germans or Celts or whatever would come down and, like, sack Rome and, like, throw their spirits or whatever. And they go, okay, you know, let's go up there. Let's show them what for. But as they're, at a certain point, they're kind of like, why are we going to Spain? <laughs> like, <laughs> what do we need there? We kind of don't really care. Um, uh, All-time podcaster Dan Carlin calls it, in a very funny way, calls it uh, uh, Rome's Vietnam, Spain, <laughs> which, like, I don't think there's a lot of great analysis going on there, but it rocks. And that's why you listen to Dan Carlin, because he rocks. Um, but it, I don't know. The, the, the comparison is well made, because, like, all of these, this is when Rome started to become more than just a city-state, right? They unite the Italian peninsula in a way which I kind of didn't really understand, and I didn't find super clear here. Mm. He talks about how it was because the aristocracy was this social formation in Rome, it made it, like, easier for them to assimilate the rest it, of the city-states? I think it was because Athens, because it couldn't tax heavily its own native population, oh, had sure. to then 
tax and exploit the neighboring city-states, sure. whereas the Roman aristocracy didn't need to do that. Mm. And so they were able to much more easily incorporate the aristocracies and the ruling classes of the mm. neighboring states and suppose, in Italy yeah. into the Roman polity. Quote, yeah, quote, kind and of. I suppose their demands were just people for armies. So the aristocracy was like, yeah, fine, take some yeah, more yeah, people, yeah. we don't care. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, We've got loads of them. They're littering the streets. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Look at them. They're having too We're many kids. We're only have to give, give them grain, otherwise. So. <laughs> yeah, that was another Send thing that away. blew my mind. That so throughout the whole history of Rome, not just the Republic, but also the Empire, until the grain all stops, you you see attempts to. Okay, I was never really satisfied with how the proletariat and the urban citizenry was like placated because it seems like they were always just placated and the contradiction was never solved and i found that kind of uncomfortable that like a ruling class in the sense the aristocracy moving forward you know into uh, the empire like could just do that it was like this contradiction was laid bare for all of rome's history between the people who lived in the city and the ruling class right and it seems like whenever it got to be a big problem they'd just be like all right up the grain doll and they'd be like yeah okay <laughs> it's like i don't know that something about that kind of frustrated me i feel like they're yeah i don't know I don't know if I felt like there could have been something else or it just frustrated me how easy it was to placate them for centuries. It's like, obviously there was social upheaval, but like, really? You just have to give them more grain? It's like, I don't know that. Yeah. Somehow yeah, that I mean, I guess right. it's just like, our wealth is predicated on the labor of slaves. And so mm. long as we have these vast yeah. uh, land holdings, which we can exploit, why not just buy off the other people kind of thing? Yeah. But you you say, you're, you're right to say that it's like, it would. It must have appeared like a very blatant failing slash <laughs> yeah. contradiction slash like something that clearly made the the situation unstable. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah. I don't know. And it's just like I know the grain doll at a certain point got to like uh, uh, bread uh, and pork. It's like <laughs> and pork. It's like okay, um, okay. So now we have to do the thing, Dan, where what everybody is contractually obliged to do when they talk about Rome and the fall of the Republic is compare it to America. <laughs> <laughs> And I was really fascinated with this because when he talks about Augustus, um, first emperor of Rome, the guy who kind of wins all of the civil wars and comes out on top and is able to kind of like put the aristocracy in its place and change it from a republic to an empire. Um, I was really fascinated with this. And he, he says a couple sentences. He says something along the lines of um, the monarchy of Augustus. He says that like Alexander might have showed up at a, the wrong time to try and create like an empire out of Greece. But he says that Augustus arrived just as his hour struck, neither too early or too late to turn it into an empire. And I was really fascinated with that because, like, people love to compare the fall of the Republic to America. And they're like, it's happening here, dude. Who's going to be the next Caesar, dude? Like, Trump is Caesar. It's so funny. I might have wanted to blithely make that comparison until I'd read this <laughs> book. And then now I have no, no idea how to go about making that comparison. Yeah, well, exactly. Because it's like... I suppose the fall of the Republic. The fall of the Republic. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not the fall of rome no okay, okay, okay. <laughs> the fall of america itself you know? but the barbarians at the gates yeah, exactly yeah <laughs> who's gonna come along with sack the canadians Washington's? <laughs> the canadians again yeah. um but it, this just makes it seem like that's all bullshit because it's like a this was a empire uh a polity on the rise right this was a place that was actively conquering and getting out there and expanding and had tons of stuff coming in and when you compare that to America, it's like, I don't know, Augustus showed up to help the empire. Right now, America's been an empire. You know what I mean? It's like, 
to say nothing of, you know, obviously America continues to still be an empire, but if we want to talk about a decline of America, I don't think you can compare it to the Republic because it's like, I don't know. Yeah, it, it seems like the the advent of the empire overcame intractable contradictions that existed exactly. within the Republic and actually allowed for it to grow more, you know? Like, mm. the high point of Rome was, like, AD 200 or whatever is what it, what he says in his book, the high point of, like, expansion mm. and city building and um, sort of architectural development in general. The map you always see. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, like, one of the problems was that the, the aristocracies of Rome would never accept any taxation on themselves and it took the took augustus to come in and be like no we're going to have to introduce a poll tax we're going to introduce mm. inheritance taxes you know and also like obviously sort of like i think he also like parceled out land and gave land to the soldiers that so kind of placated these armies that were had been so rebellious mm. the reasons why so many armies like sided with augustus so many of the proletarians sided with augustus because there was nothing in the in the republic rather for them to like actually have any fealty to anymore so it was like mm. it was more like the the republic had run its course rather than anybody came and actually overthrew it yeah. well, obviously it was but like yeah yeah yeah, yeah. but i don't know i i guess ju just when you look at the the like actual social relations that existed in rome and you try and compare them to america all i'm saying well silly yeah it just, it just yeah it just feels radically different it would be hilarious if like trump came along and was like listen here american bourgeoisie we got to do things my way and then america just became like a globe spanning like <laughs> like it's all america now it's like oh jack was wrong um Okay, we'll see it. We'll believe it when we see it. We'll believe it when we see it, <laughs> folks. Um, all right, well then, yeah, let's talk about uh, the Empire, I guess. As you're saying, yeah, around AD 200, when Edward Gibbon famously said, this is when people were the happiest and everything was the best. And it's like, what about all those <laughs> slaves? And you know, what are you going to do? I'm not talking about the slaves. Um, yeah, this is when you see, you get the, like, five good emperors, right? And you get, like, you know, the map that goes all the way, like, Tessaphon on the banks of, like, the Tigris and the Euphrates all the way to, like, Spain and then, you know, up in England and it's everywhere and you got Dacia and stuff. They don't tell you that, like, a couple years after that is when it started to shrink again. Um, but the point is, is that, like, it could only get to a certain point where expansion made sense. And obviously, you know, uh, slave economies... Uh, necessitate expansion. Slaves don't just come out of nowhere. If they're going to be your entire labor base, then you got to go get them from somewhere. But it just got to a certain point where, for various reasons, things couldn't keep going on as they were. And people, like, recognize this, and this is why, you know, Trajan dies and Hadrian comes along and is like, you know what, Dacia and all that, maybe perhaps not. Gonna but, build um, a wall. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna, folks, <laughs> we're going to build a wall. Um, but, yeah, it, it, it's funny because, like, all histories of Rome are incredibly idealistic. And it just gets to the point where it was like, you know, Rome realized that its expansion needed to come to an end and it was time to consolidate. And it's like, <laughs> who's Rome? It's like, who's deciding this? You know what I mean? But um, yeah. And though, yeah. yeah. And you get to this point and it's almost at the point where long before the Western Roman Empire fell, this is all, you're almost getting two Romes at this point. Yeah. Like the East and the West have become so different from one another in terms of their sort of like the basis of their economies. Um it's already at this point that you start to see this sort of split between the two. But yeah, but like Perry Anderson's, in a nutshell, his argument is like, they run out, of, they ran out of people to conquer, they ran out of people to enslave. The mode of production was so heavily reliant on the on the importation of new slaves that the prices of slaves skyrocketed, um, and therefore it sort of like undermined quite heavily the basis of a, of the slave mode of production. 
mm. which exposed the West far more than the East to uh, problems, mm. <laughs> uh, for want of a better word. Um, basically, because like the West, in, in the Western Roman Empire, they pioneered this new kind of expansion, whereas all prior sort of like imperial and colonial expansion of the slave of slave mode of production had been around the Mediterranean. It hadn't sort of expanded into large landlocked landlocked i don't know like l- large inland yeah. areas i suppose but the west did right the mm. west conquered spain they conquered gaul they went up into england um they made inroads into germany and installed upon the land there these massive like uh agricultural land holdings and the latifundi and the sort of like massive enslavement of populations and put mm. them to work mm. but there, there you have like an agricultural model which is most heavily reliant on slavery in the in the roman air the, the area controlled by the romans and so it left it most exposed to this crisis mm. so perry yeah. anderson is just like it's the slave stupid like, <laughs> um am i wrong <laughs> am i wrong or am i right um yeah it's also interesting too Talking about how this was obviously a maritime empire, as all empires back then tended to be, mainly just because it's a lot easier to ship things across a sea as it is across land, and it's quicker, and you can communicate faster, blah, 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 blah. So in the West, you know, you also had to contend with that. It's a lot harder to, like, say some kooky general gets it into his head to revolt in England. It's a lot harder to, like, actually deal with that Mm -hmm. than, say, if they did it in... um, Syria or something yeah. like that, which actually tended to not really happen that much in the East, weirdly enough. Um, obviously, there are instances, there were breakaway empires, but not as much as in the West. Yeah, he makes quite a lot of, he, he offers quite a lot of explanations for that general difference, I think, whether it's like the much, maybe it's just the history of the region is very different, right? Mm. It's much more urbanized. There is this history of deference to empire, emperors that in the East compared to the West, particularly with like something that he dates back to Alexander and what had been going and Macedonia and the way the Macedonians thought about their sort of rulers kind of thing but also like they developed a much more um stable bureaucratic class cast I think in the Uh, east compared to the west and this kind of thing and also like he makes quite a big point of um saying what the early influence of the Christian church was having upon the Mm. populations in the east as compared to the west so there were quite a lot of differences that were gradually creating this cultural and economic rift between the two portions of the Roman Empire, I guess. Mm. Yeah, exactly. It just very entirely different. I, it always blows my mind when you hear the fact that always gets trotted out about how Nasser in the 50s was like the first Egyptian ruler of Egypt since like before Alexander. It's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. whoa. Um, but yeah, one thing that's also interesting is as things start to dry up in terms of the slave population, it starts, and this is where we start to, hey, get into a transition to feudalism, is it starts to make more sense for these people that own these like massive estates that would number in like thousands and thousands of acres, right? And tens of thousands of slaves. It starts making more sense for them to just kind of settle some of their slaves on the land and go, just work it for yourself. Um, work it for yourself. You can have a little bit of it, but it's still mine. You know what I mean? He says here, to expand on that, uh, in the recessive conditions of the later empire, slave labor, always linked to a system of political and military expansion, became increasingly scarce and cumbersome. It was therefore widely converted 
uh, by landowners into dependent adscription to the soil. A critical turning point occurred when the price curve of slaves, which, because we've kind of gotten to the point where there's commodity slavery, right? Which is we have, uh, wait a minute, where was I? Where the price curve of slaves, which as we have seen sloped steeply upwards in the first 200 years of the Principate, became, uh, because of supply shortages, started to flatten out and fall in the third century, a sure sign of contracting demand. Owners henceforward increasingly ceased to provide for the upkeep of many of their slaves directly, but established them on small plots of land to look after themselves, from which they collected the surplus produce. Um, and then he says that estates tended to become divided into nuclear home farms, still worked by slave later, a mass of peasant tendencies tilled by dependents um, surrounding them. Which is, I guess, yeah, you start to see the seeds of something resembling feudalism there. Although this kind of wouldn't really take shape for another couple centuries, but... It's very interesting, and I think this is kind of where I started to have problems with this text, because this is an extremely chaotic period, and when you leave out concrete detail, as you have to do to have a study like this, it's not going to make sense, I think, overall. Mm -hmm. The general idea that Anderson has is that there were a number of things that led to, uh, you know, the drying up of slaves, the prices, you know, flattening out, and different things like this. Uh, that led to it just to make more economic sense for these people to just settle slaves on their land. Um, it holds up, but it's also like this was an era where everyone was kind of just trying to maintain the status quo, but kind of as things were falling apart. And so in different places, things operated very differently. Um, you would still have like Latifundia up until like, you know, German invasions of the West or whatever. But like, I don't know, this is a very hard bit of history to talk about beginning of the dark ages and the fall of the empire because it's just it's way too chaotic i think yeah i mean well but there, there was a well i've learned from this book i didn't know about this before there was a crisis in the roman empire in like the mm. third century and he basically just says we don't really know anything <laughs> about what caused it yeah and he says well it kind of stabilized mm. like because like the generals kind of took over again the aristocracy mm. were kind of like finally removed from their position of having ultimate political power and this is sort of shift mm. to sort of like a greater militarization they reintroduce conscription and this kind of thing so there is this ability to shore up the borders for the time being but the population starts to decline and never really recovers yeah um but he, he does he is very clear in making the point that like this is a very very opaque period of history that we just don't yeah. really have enough information to say concretely what was happening on specific dates in specific places kind of yeah. thing. Uh, there was another thing I wanted to bring up in line with what you were saying about the landlords kind of like doing away with slavery and just passing out the land and sort of shifting back toward a kind of like tenant farmer model. One of the other things that Reynolds a parallel to this period of time is a decrease in the population of the people living in the cities and people yeah. are moving back to the countryside. And I think one of the things that's pushing them out is this um, the sort of overbearing tax burden that's now coming from these various sort of like city states and their governments kind of thing. Um, and one of the things that is granted people who move back to become tenant farmers again is a certain degree of protection from their land, well, but that's received from their landlords, but a protection against sort of like vexatious tax collectors. Mm. Um, and also like, the threat of like marauding gangs or whatever or sort of rebellious soldiers or everything else like in this sort of general period of social decay a degree of protection is found 
on these sort of landed estates kind of thing, which is the genesis of a sort of like sort of patrician way of organizing society, which will become the basis of feudalism later on, whereby mm -hmm. people work the land and one of the things they get from the local landlord is a certain degree of protection. Right? Yeah. And this is the, 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 the genesis of that, what will grow into one of the hallmarks of feudalism. You start to see in this period of decline within the Roman Empire. Mm. Yeah, it's funny. My understanding has always been of the decline of populations of cities because, like, it's pretty staggering when you look at, like, population peak Western Roman Empire of Rome. It's, like, upwards of a million people. That's insane to think about in a city where there is, like, scant plumbing and everyone uses fire for light and heat. It's, like, that would be insane. Um, but my understanding of the collapse, like, it went from a million people to, like, when Rome eventually got sacked in, you know, the 5th century uh, to about, like, 30,000 people. Um, my understanding has always been that it was because the grain doll collapsed and one of the emperors, I forget who, it might have been Aurelian, was just like, we're done with this. We can't keep mm -hmm. up with this grain doll for this many people. And so it wasn't, you know, taxes probably played a role like in tandem with that, but also it's just like, they've been relying on that for centuries. So you were right, it was a ludicrous situation and it had to come to an end at a certain yeah, point in time. Exactly. It just becomes untenable. Exactly, yeah, exactly. But one thing that, and so, you know, what are you going to do? You're going to move out to the countryside and someone's going to give you land. Hey, perfect, look at that. But um, the crisis of the third century is something that's really interesting because, you know, everybody always makes the point that Rome very nearly collapsed there and eh, maybe it kind of did for a little while. Two things are really interesting. One is that the aristocracy kind of like had to take power for a little while. And when they were forced power, they really didn't want it. Like they had to give it to some asshole named Tacitus and in certain periods there just was no em emperor because like they gave it to a couple guys and then they immediately were killed. <laughs> so it was like, maybe you, uh, that's actually not a job. Yeah, you just go on. for a period where like that person was assassinated like six months later and yeah. somebody took over and they died yeah. and it was just like, it really didn't go very well. <laughs> there is a uh, pretty kick-ass period. Uh, I think it was the year of the six emperors where, or five, something like that, where, uh, uh, a kind of cool guy who the histories like became emperor and then he gets strangled and, you know, the uh, Praetorian Guard kills him. And then the Praetorian Guard just goes, who should we give it to? And they didn't have anyone to give it to. So they were just like, let's start a bidding war. And so this like rich asshole just like sprints down to the form and just like gives them all of his money. And they're like, hey, you're emperor now. And then a general comes by and kills him like immediately after that. Good times. But the second thing that's interesting about the crisis of the third century is the way that it ends and the way that this schism, or not this schism, this collapse, is kind of stopped. And I found a parallel in the placation of the proletariat here because it's like none of the contradictions were solved. Diocletian comes along and he goes, okay, you know, we just got to hike up our big boy pants and we got to, you know, do some reform. And uh, this is organized in an absolutely ludicrous way. Our borders are undefeated, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And he just does a bunch of stuff. And in theory, by the time he's done with his very long reign, he's like, we're back on track. No one's ever going to start a civil war. And then before he finishes that sentence, another civil war starts. But the emperor, the empire is able to go along in the West for at least another century and a half, um, two centuries between, between that period of time. And it seems like it was just like a general placation. Um, it was generally like papering over the internal contradictions, doing a little bit of like sneaky managerial stuff behind the scenes to make sure that hey, this collapse won't happen as quickly, but the collapse is still happening. Um, I found that slightly worrying. <laughs> um, I don't know if I would have preferred to have just seen precedent for a complete and utter collapse immediately, but like, 
I don't know. Whenever I see how you can kind of just paper over these contradictions, it's very worrying because it's like, God damn, how long have we been doing that for? You know, <laughs> capitalism. It's just hey, like... Yeah, we might be living in another decadent system that really <laughs> oh, ought to end. But... <laughs> decadence. Uh, liberal decadence. I mean, the thing that ends it is the first wave of invasions, right? Should we move on to that? To, yeah, the end of the Empire in the West. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. But that only happens because... All of these people are forced off of the lands in which they currently inhabit at this time because of the invasion of the Huns from the east, right? Mm. So, like, it's not even like... Oh, the Huns. <laughs> it's not even like all of these Germanic tribes and got together and were like, hey, look, Rome's pretty weak. Let's go and have them, lads. <laughs> yeah. It's like, no, they're, they, they have to... They're pushed rather than mm. jump. I don't know. <laughs> like... Well, there had been frequent raids, but they'd been that. Yeah, they'd yeah, been yeah. raids, and yeah, there had been. It, it does make the point also that there are these like there are troops of sol groups of soldiers that sort of defect and become bands of mercenaries who are just yeah. raiding places, and like it's, there's a general internal decay as well as this sort of outside threat kind of thing. It's like mm. a double movement. There had been migrations before, usually due to overpopulation, in which the empire had to kind of take people on. But they'd usually do it in a way where it made sense, and they'd kind of move all these people around, and they'd make it so that, like, general, like, the rule of thumb that I think they had learned is if you try and just settle a large mass of people together, they're just going to stay that mass of people. And if you let them keep their weapons, that's probably not going to be a good idea when you come around to try and collect taxes. So generally what they would do is they'd, like, disperse these people, say you can come into the empire, you have to pay taxes, and you can't bring your weapons. And whoever it was, Germans, Celts, whatever, would just go, okay, you know, whatever, that's fine. Um, but what happened here is that the empire didn't want to do that anymore. They said, were full, perhaps, and, or, you know, there are some really, like, horror stories about them, like, what they actually did to uh, some of these tribes that were being forced westward by the Huns and by these, like, you know, broader population movements. Um, but suffice it to say, they messed it all up entirely here towards the end of the empire, and these people basically just rampaged through the empire looking for a place to live, and they would settle in some places, and then get kind of kicked out by other people. Um, and so it's very chaotic. <laughs> very, very chaotic. But um, yeah, you're right to bring up this first invasion because I think that this sets the tone for the synthesis and towards synthesis, which is the synthesis between uh, Roman customs and the Germanic communal mode of production or whatever, which I'm a little, I don't know. I've always been told that the word Celt and the word Germanic hold no weight when you actually study history. And so it's kind of like uh, the Germanic customs of these people. Mm -hmm. Suffice it to say, what he talks about here is prior to real engagement with Rome as an empire, the Germanic peoples um, lived in a very communal way, right? There was no real private property. Uh, whenever anybody would, you know, try and figure out what can we do with this land? What are we going to do? You know, a bunch of like dudes probably would get together and decide, um, but it was very democratic and it was very communal. But once they started to have contact with Rome and they started to trade with Rome, certain people obviously took advantage of that more. And so then property started to form. And so when he says that there's like, I thought this was interesting. He said that this th synthesis begins with a breakdown of these two types of modes. It's like, you're seeing the breakdown of the Germanic communal way of living, but you're also seeing a breakdown of like Roman law. And so when these people are or Roman customs or whatever. When when the Germans are like forced westwards, um, this weird synthesis of two kind of systems in decay kind of happens, or at least two systems in flux. Maybe we shouldn't say decay. Um, that leads to like this very, very weird state of affairs after this first invasion. Mm -hmm. 
the, the, what differentiates the two the two phases of invasion, and we'll get into the second one later in a minute, is that the first one it's population movements where people leave their sort of like homeland, I suppose, and settle in a place which is like not terror doesn't territorially border where mm. they're from, right? So they're settler populations all over Western Europe who. And for a period of time, they sort of run this dual system, right? Like, they're not actually huge numbers of people. So there is enough land to parcel out between the two. And they kind of, like, organize themselves very separately. There is still this sort of sphere of Roman life that continues in very much the same vein. And mm. at the same time, the sort of, like, the G G the Germanic tribe sort of, like, bring their current mode of living, which is some kind of amalgamation, as you just described. Like, it's not the communal way of living that they had before they encountered Rome. It's a much more kind of like there are now pseudo-monarchic rulers kind of thing and they have mm -hmm. retinues of armed men around them and kind of thing and then they have populations over which they take responsibility and then sort of exact uh, taxes and tolls mm. and rents in, in uh, the same kind of thing. Yeah, those rents were or really rents rather than not taxes. Kind of yeah, thing. that was really interesting because he said this first wave of invasions is like the Visigoths, your classics, and your Ostrogoths, and the Burgundians, and whatnot. Um, and it was really interesting because you kind of had to have this weird state of affairs when, say, a bunch of Visigoths show up on your Latifundi or whatever, or near you. And he yeah, says, I hate it when that happens. <laughs> yeah, God damn it, I hate it when that happens. But he makes the point that, like, whenever agreements in this first wave of invasions took place, that they almost always took place between two people, and that that was kind of really important for this development of these modes after this first wave of invasions, in that, like, the clan strongman or, like, the clan, you know, the guy in charge or whatever would meet with, like, a local Roman schmuck or whatever guy in charge, and uh, they would agree to, you know, respect each other, but then also like, hey, or maybe not respect each other in some cases, but like when they did agree to respect each other, the the optimate of like the German clan or whatever would settle his people on the land. And so it gave it this kind of like very interesting person-to-person -person concrete agreement between the settlements of these peoples. But again, like the concrete detail of this is extremely opaque. So like, you know, let's just believe that, <laughs> <laughs> you know, makes it easy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But suffice to say, this uh, situation of dual existence can't last very long. Mm. But it's not from this dual existence. He says that the synthesis comes, the feudal synthesis comes. That takes a few more centuries to develop. So there is this period of time where these two worlds coexist. Um, but like various new invasions, like um, the Muslims into Spain, and I don't know what else, like the the... Franks into Northern mm. Gaul kind the of Muslims thing. were later, but yeah, oh, okay. the Franks, okay, yeah, okay, yeah, okay. yeah, for the second one. Um, and no, but yeah, but like the, the yeah, the things which up, uh, unseat these sort of like very nascent uh, oh, sure. Germanic kingdoms, quote unquote kingdoms, that are the result mm. of the first wave are sort of undone by various other invasions and things, mm. and then you have this second wave of uh, migration. So quite the, the Franks into Northern Gaul, the Anglo-Saxons into Britain. Mm. To right here. To right here. To literally right. here. It's where they landed. What the fuck? And um, some other people into northern Italy. I can't remember. <laughs> the Lombards. The Lombards, yeah. yeah. I don't know. Um, can I God just say them. on that, Nothing too? against the Lombards. Well, can I just say on that point, too? Like, that first wave, people traveled very far. Yeah. The Visigoths went from, like, you know, on the, on the far end of the Danube to, like, first to goal 
then to Spain, where they'd settle for a couple of centuries. Um, the Vandals at, ended up in northern Africa, The Vandals Africa, ended up right? going and doing the same from? thing and then going all the way to northern Africa, which kind of kicks ass. Um, and then they would, like, invade Rome from the <laughs> south, which is so cool. Like, Matt, that is so cool. Oh. Um, they were the only people who didn't try dual existence. And we're like, no, yeah, we're going to like, expropriate this. Like, you guys can't. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Um, but then the second wave of invasions, and you can kind of tell from the names of these tribes, right, that these were the more lasting ones. Uh-huh. And these people traveled very short distances. Uh, the Franks would go from basically like a base of power in what's now Belgium to France, where we would, you know, would take the name of France from the Franks. Um, the Lombards would travel a bit further, but like he says that their base of power at this point of time before the invasion was in like Austria, slash Switzerland, like around there on the other side of the Alps. They would basically just go into what's now Lombardy. So that's where we get their name from. Um, and then also, who's the last? Oh, the Anglo-Saxons. Anglo-Saxons. Yeah, England. <laughs> so it's like, boom, there you go. Um, from Northern Germany, Saxony. Yeah, over yeah. To, which is a bit obviously like far, but only because you're on a boat. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And also one of the things that... Because these are sort of like now they're contiguous areas, right? Like they're they border the, the area from which people are migrating to where they're coming from border. Maybe in there's the North Sea in the way, but like mm. they are bordering. <laughs> so rather than them being quite small populations which go and then live a separate existence in the space where they've migrated to, you have this much slower but much larger migration mm. of peoples. Um, such that it's possible for them to sort of like actually unseat the prior existing sort of Roman ways of doing things and actually start to then build the synthesis of the two systems which will become feudalism right so because they're much larger populations because they're territorially connected you have this much very different but also a much more lasting form of population migration Yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, again, this is all so chaotic, and he kind of is, like, running around all over the place trying to make sense of, like, oh, uh, where did the thief come from? I guess it kind of came from here. It kind of came from, like, this weird kind of synthesis of the breakdown of both of these systems. Um, But it's funny because the end of this chapter, basically, or this part, (laughs) ends with, like, references to Charlemagne. Mm. And it's like, holy shit, okay, we've come, like, a very long way (laughs) from, like, you know, analyzing each decade. Um, yeah, it's very funny. I mean, yeah. he basically says that it's, it isn't until Charlemagne's time that we actually see, okay, the peasants got there a lot. Yeah, and it's almost presented, it is a generally so, sort of like one of these ironies of history, right? That Charlemagne imagined himself potentially a sort of rekindling something, <laughs> something of the Roman order that had fallen, right? But because he managed to secure rule over such a large area and instill, and instill a certain degree of... Uh, political coherence into one particular area there was enough stability that actually what developed was not a return to rome as was but this development of a new mode of production i.e feudalism Mm. and he suggests that um what would become recognizable from feudalism so like the sort of the village structure the tenant farmer structure the sense of the sort of like convention of serfdom the protection of the serfs by the landlords kind of thing these elements of feudalism have kind of their analogs in both systems both the sort of like collapsing and reconfiguring germanic system and also the collapsing roman system and so this is the synthesis of the two collapsing systems that Mm. he talks about at the beginning of this chapter kind of thing Uh, but it all comes about mostly just because charlemagne is actually trying to rekindle rome but because he instills a degree of stability, what you get is something different. Yeah. Kind of thing. 
I, uh, a long time ago, I uh, got a book on Charlemagne thinking it would just be a, a biography of him. And it wound up being a book arguing that Charlemagne uh, invented the idea of the EU. <laughs> just like, I got to the end and I was, because I had to finish it. And I got to the end and I was just like, what the fuck did I just read? It's like, the author was basically like, Germany, France, EU. <laughs> it's like, yeah, okay. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So there are the world is full of batshit historical interpretations. <laughs> yes, I was just talking when you're not being particularly materialist about exactly. It. I was just talking to someone today about how they're saying that publishers will no longer pay for peer review for a lot of historical books. So if you're writing a popular history, they just kind of go, "Yeah, it seems like you know what you're talking about." <laughs> it's like, whoa, okay. <laughs> um, uh-huh. I was left with this synthesis bit with the overwhelming urge to think that feudalism was a more natural way of doing things than the slave mode of production. And what I mean by that, obviously I don't mean that it was inevitable in any way, but like, for example, you don't see large-scale, massive empire-building invasions during the Middle Ages like you did with Rome, because like, if you wanted to raise an army, you were going to have to raise it from the peasants. And if you're going to raise it from the peasants, okay, who's going to grow your food? Like, if all those people just wind up going off and dying, no one's growing your food, you, as the baron or the king or whatever, rely on that guy and his family to grow your food. So you're not really going to do that. Whereas under the ancient mode, you had this like independent labor base where you could just kind of like, oh, the slaves will deal with it. You know, they'll just do that. And then when, hey, you know, we'll get more slaves when we go off and invade and stuff. Um, But it seems very interesting. It's like when you don't have the capability to, this is going to sound obvious, but when you don't have the capability to like maintain a slave mode of production, I keep wanting to just say that like feudalism is just kind of this lull that you relax into. Um, And I know that that's like, you know, it's bad history to think like that, but it's like, it's much easier and much more stable to keep something like that going because like, obviously there were wars on a big scale in the Middle Ages, but it's like, there was nothing the size of like, I don't know, Gaugamela or like one of these big ass battles where hundreds of thousands of people were fighting, Mm -hmm. right? And that's just because like, you know, there was this mutual reliance on like, the expropriator and the, you know, schmuck peasant or whatever that you didn't really get in the ancient slave mode of production. And it's almost strange that, like, one didn't come before the other, although I guess that would be trying to make history into, like, a coherent narrative. Yeah, I am... There were times when I was reading sections of this book, particularly, like, the the parts that were pre the rise of Athens... And also some of those descriptions of the political political economy of the sort of like post-Alexander Hellenist states. And I was a bit like, there are things here that are reminiscent of feudalism. Mm. And so I was, when you say that this sort of seems like the natural thing that you fall into, perhaps, like, still, it's still not clear to me and something to work on in the future, I think. Mm. To what degrees were there not? forms of feudalism that existed in some yeah. of these pockets of history prior to the rise of Rome and the dominance of the slave mode of production. But you're quite right to say, like, it was definitely a much more stable mode of production, wasn't mm. it? Like, you didn't... you And you might be... You, you're probably correct to hit on that, being that you just can't raise large armies in the system. And so... And also because one of the things you just made me think of, actually, is one of the things that's that comes about in... Charlemagne's rule in uh, northern France is the parceling out of the land between these people that fall in his retinue that sort of start to become 
the sort of the new ruling class, right? And so they have a small portion of land and they have some serfs that live on it and they exploit those exploit those serfs. But what you have is very small pockets. Like you have this diffusion of political power into a large number of hands. Yeah. And I, I guess what, that probably added a degree of stability, right? Because like... You didn't. No, none of those people were ever going to get so uppity that they, you or you were never going to agglomerate all of those together into one bigger state that would then become a an actor in the way that Rome was, say, and mm. de- start to develop a much larger and connected political economy that was the political economy of the sort of like antique states that preceded feudalism, kind of thing. Mm. But the thing that's just made me think of, and this is a bit sort of speculative, is that also if we think back to like. Um, Ellen Meeksin's word description of the rise of capitalism. What was it that was unique about England? The la- the areas of land that were held by people became much larger again. Mm. And also there were lots of people on this land and the, the ruling class were encouraged to start to be more creative with the forms of exploitation they were taking, right? So maybe there is this dynamic where like the area of land controlled by one noble contracted during feudalism and then when it was able to expand again you got this more dynamic move sort of movement of the economy that in this instance sort of like transformed into capitalism um mm. i don't know i'm just flying yeah. by the seat of my pants now but maybe no I, I i think kind of exactly what you're saying is like what i take from it is it just makes the development of modes of production when you actually start to look at them just seem so random like Obviously, there are things, you know, where if you were to go back into England and at the time Ellen Meekson's what it's talking about, you can kind of be like, hey, market relations are being formed. Hey, they're putting fences up around the communal land, blah, 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 blah. But like, it really just seems like there are just these random impetuses that no one can really control. And they're just trying to keep things the way that they are. And everything just kind of completely changes. It makes me worried for the prospect of socialism, that this is how random everything has been in the past. But it's also like, hey, if we would like to enter into a period of time in which we actually control our own destinies uh, for the first time, perhaps ever, uh, then we're actually going to have to do that. You know what I mean? So I don't know. It gets me kind of back to the idea of like, will the transition to socialism be the first planned one? God damn it. It makes me feel like no. But like, what well, you know, I suppose that's why we study the contradictions in capitalism is to see where they're pointing, you know? Um, yeah. yeah, it's just, I don't know, going back specifically and looking at Greece and the different forms of the kind of a similar thing that existed in such a small place, you know, it's like it could have gone anyway. Mm-hmm. What if like everybody was just uh, helots, you know what I mean? Obviously, there are explanations for why that didn't happen and why Sparta couldn't advance as much as Athens or to say nothing of Rome, mm-hmm. but... Um, yeah. Yeah. One of the things that this has really hammered home to me is this idea of class conflicts being something which really drives a lot of the dynamism of the development of mm. history and modes of production and um, these economic forms, I guess. Yeah. Um, I suppose that's why we focus on that instead of like the concrete differences, right, between like Athens and Sparta. Yeah. You know yeah, what yeah. I mean? Because they had similar social relations that existed. Even if you could point to little things being like, well, it's different there, you know. There was one other thing I was going to mention before the end, which it. was just to mention how central he thinks the church is and the role of the church yeah. is to this transition. Mm. Um, and the main reason why I wanted to bring it up, because it also loops back to something right at the beginning that I wanted to talk about, we didn't really get onto, was he says that one of the, the bridging institution for this transition to feudalism was the church. And one of the things that was different, he, he, he characterizes Christianity as being this sort of ascetic religion. 
And also there's this movement toward the formation of uh, monasteries during this period as well, which is kind of like representative of this fusion between intellectual labor that's done by monks at monasteries and also sort of like a manual labor that they would also do at the same time. And one of the things that he suggests is characteristic of this entire period, really, is this kind of like philosophical and cultural degradation of the idea of manual labor. It's just like demeaning, like people want to rise above it. The philosophers just think that it's like there's nothing of interest in it. And it's it's that kind of like um, demeaning of manual labor, something that's just diminished to the thing that slaves do and like civilized people don't engage in that results not only in like a not very productive form of labor because like slave labor isn't particularly productive mm. like you can't encourage greater productivity in a slave population they're just not fussed by it <laughs> and also because you have this sort of like degradation of the idea of labor in general that idea that actually then spreads over into the free citizens and the free citizenry isn't particularly interested in working particularly hard and one of the things that ha results is you sort of like there is no interest in this model in adapting, modifying or improving the efficiency of labor, the productivity of labor in any way, which is something which the church and the growth of Christianity kind of restores this dignity to labor, which has been so demeaned through this entire period of the existence of the slave mode of production kind of thing. And it sort of brings me back to this sort of my one lingering critique of this sort of assessment that Perry Anderson is given, which is that like all the way through this, he points out ways in which this mode of production isn't dynamic, particularly because it isn't interested in increasing the productivity of labor, which strikes me very much as this kind of like reading capitalism back into history. It almost mm. seems like Perry Anderson is reading history as this development of increases in the productivity of labor. There's a point early on in the book when he says sort of like the slave mode of production wasn't dynamic or in any particular way. And then he almost suggests that feudalism was more so. Mm. And I was a bit taken aback because I'm always like feudalism is the like almost the non-mode of production. Like there is no growth. It's sort of like perfectly stable kind of thing. Mm. But, but I so I'm not really quite sure how to sort of square that idea of his. I'm not quite sure what he was pointing at. Maybe I've just misinterpreted. But the only way that I can make sense of it is to think that maybe what he is reading all throughout history is this sort of like the equivalent of the commercialization thesis as Ellen Mixes Wood describes it, which is you've got this gradual growth of efforts to increase the productivity of labor up until you get to capitalism, where that's the sort of central focus, right? Increase the productivity of labor and grow more kind of thing. Yeah, but, yeah. I, th I know that that's kind of like a general critique that gets leveled at him. But like, I don't know. I, I think that like that is something you need to note is that like mm -hmm. this is a mode of production in which hey, they figured out the water mill, but they didn't care enough to really use it, at least in the West. And then, wow, along comes feudalism and like everybody's got a yeah. water mill, right? Like, I don't know. Perhaps he doesn't put enough emphasis on like, there was quite a bit of like intellectual development in a lot of these places that just did not happen um, under feudalism. But like, yeah, I see what you're saying, but maybe, maybe there isn't... Uh, I don't, I don't that, mean that it's not... Sorry, go on. Well, I was just going to say that the emphasis doesn't need to be on, like, modes of production need to increase levels of productivity as so much as noting, like, damn, this one wasn't going to. Mm -hmm. And it it, invent, it even was confronted with a way in which it could, and then I was like, man, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> I only think that it's what he's doing is overlooking this, what, you've just what you've just described as the specificity of each mode. He's sort yeah. of overlooking the specificity in favor of reading an absence mm. of capitalism 
backwards mm. into history kind of thing. So he's assessing these modes of production, not from their own mechanisms, but from the standpoint of knowing that capitalism is a possibility mm. and looking backwards onto history. But, sure. Um, Even socialism, yeah. though. Yeah. Because like we are interested in developing the productive apparatus to a certain point under yeah, capitalism yeah. and even further as we'd be unable to under capitalism, under socialism, right? So yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. And I do stand with him. He make, when you were just saying about the watermill, he makes a really just a point that I, I like. He, well, he, he seems to come down on the idea that um, what's preeminent in the study of history is the study of the social relations, not the development mm. of technology, right? Yeah. He, makes, he says that like this technology developed, but there just weren't the social relations to make use of that's the a really technological development kind of thing, yeah. i.e. the, the watermill. That's Rome. a really good point whenever you come across someone who's trying to use technological you know, like a liberal who's moved on from idealism and it's like, well, okay, but the invention of the watermill moved history. It's like, well, they had the watermill and they decided not to use it. Why yeah. was that? You know? Um, yeah, it's very interesting. Very, very interesting how there's just no impetus for like, this is going to sound so obvious, but there's like no impetus to improve uh, productivity under a slave mode of production because it's just, it's more or less just like a zero-sum game. It's just like more slaves, they'll do the work that they do. They die, more slaves. That's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, in fact, makes and me really buy, fascinated. And then we buy off all the other citizens with a grain doll. Yeah, exactly. And just have them sitting idly and the <laughs> yeah. city's not doing anything. <laughs> Talk about lumping. Um, it, yeah, I don't know. It just really makes me interested in wanting to dive perhaps a bit more into how that uh, happens under capitalism. Obviously, it's because of competition and it's because of this, because of that. But I've been thinking about, you know, when we came across the Mike Davis and when he was like, but the working class has actually been a lot of the people who have been interested in this the most. I'd like to read a bit more about that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Workers, huh? Yeah. In it. Um, well, this rocked. Yeah. We and, will come back to read the second half of this some yeah. point in time. Maybe not next week. I think it's going to be hefty. Because I think he does it all for the wet, for Western Europe, and then he does it all again for Eastern Europe. And mm -hmm. it's like, all right. Yeah, the second half of this book is just the consolidation of the feudal mode of production and a description mm. of that process. I've played Kingdom Come. I know what the feudal mode of production was. Uh -huh. I well, tried to play Kingdom Come. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea what that is. You can tell me after. Just some RPG crap. Uh -huh. um, all right. Well, uh, yeah, that was really good. Um, as we said before, folks, Discord. Uh, fucking YouTube, YouTube. <laughs> fucking Instagram and Twitter. We got it all. We got it coming out of our ears, folks. So come hang. Uh, give us suggestions for stuff to read. Someone gave us a suggestion today, actually, which That's is cool. Um, and uh, yeah, here we are, Dan, <laughs> at the end of another week, just moving towards the totality of human knowledge. We're getting there. We're uh -huh. getting there. As uh -huh. our friend Hillary Putnam would like us to say, <laughs> we're, we're working our way towards it. We're just knowledge in the box. <laughs> and trying to hold it all in. It's trying to get out. It slowly seeps out through cracks, but um, know, that's just the quality of our craftsmanship. Yeah, on the, on yeah. The, the box, box. we're trying to hold. Very on bad box. <laughs> um, um, Yeah. Well, cool being able to talk about Rome. Um, Rome always rocks, and uh, yeah, suppose cool we'll history. Yeah, it's the cool. Well, and also just the Dark Ages, dude. Because it's just like I know I've said this before on the show, but it's like periods of history in which you don't have enough detail to really understand things are mm -hmm. just the coolest. Yeah, they're just so. It's like the Dark like, Ages. Like dragons, you know. Yeah. Although I will say one last note to end on the. Whenever you hear people be like, "You can't call it the Dark Ages," because it's like for the average person, life kind of just probably continued as it did. Perhaps not. <laughs> Perhaps that's actually not true. I'm not actually sure which period of history we're periodizing as the Dark Ages now. It's like Between fall the of fall the of Rome to like 900? Yeah, or like Charlemagne, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 800. Yeah. It's just a few hundred years. Yeah. Okay. 
So I don't know. He does describe the period preceding Athens as a, a Greek Dark Age, and yes. it's much longer. It's like yeah. 1200 all the way through to 800 BC yeah. or something. So, like, I don't know. There have been mm. multiple Dark Ages, depending yeah. on how you read the history, I guess. <laughs> and they're all cool folks, yeah. Yeah. I guess. Um, one of my favorite books is uh, Canical for Leibowitz, and it's this, like, it's a post-apocalyptic book where there's it's a story of, like, monks who have carried on the Christian religion, and they find this, like, all technology's gone because, like, you know, nuclear bombs have destroyed the planet. And, uh, a standard template construct. Standard, oh, no. <laughs> classic, classic. And they're digging around in some rubble, and they find what they think is, like, uh, you know, how we get society back, and it's just a shopping list. Like, this, this is incredible. Um, but yeah, reminds me of that. All right, uh, we'll be back at some point. We've gone a little long today, man. Yeah, yes. it's a long one. And, Apologies um, to the listener, unless you're enjoying it. We we're trying to discuss a millennium history. Yeah. So I think we've done quite sense. well, really. Yeah. <laughs> All right, folks, well, we'll be back uh, sometime soon with something good. We've got some good stuff in the works. And um, stay tuned. And uh, come home. I've been Jack. Good to talk to you. I've been done. Thank you, Jack. Thank you for listening, everyone. We'll see you again. <laughs> the music you heard this episode was Music to Kill Bad People Too by King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. If you like this song, you can check it out and much, much more on their Bandcamp at kinggizzard.bandcamp.com. Be sure and follow us up on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you like what you heard, be sure and tune in next week for some more comedy discussion. Till next time.